Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Fire You Camp It Out. My name is Melvin. I just want to say thank you so much for being here. So I would like to get into the stimulus today. Um, there are a few things I want to point out about that. Uh, I want to, if we have time, to get into modern monetary theory. Uh, and I also want to get into professional decline. All of these things may sound like they are not related, but uh, I promise you, uh, and I've been working on this one for a while, I will find a way to tie all these things together. So with the discussion of the STIMI, uh, as they're calling it on the inter interwebs right now, uh, the stimulus checks, uh, the COVID-19 rescue package, the third COVID-19 rescue package uh, passed last week, and it was signed into law on Thursday, uh, which is a day earlier than we all expected, and people started getting their money on Friday and Saturday, and I checked my account this morning, and the stimulus is already posted to me, and it came through incredibly quickly. Um... I've watched interviews with folks who have uh, already received their money and they're talking about how, you know, they're going to make rent and they're going to be able to buy food and they're going to be able to pay off some of their debts. And, and it's money that is being spent right away. This bill was passed through the reconciliation process. It did have to pass without the $15 Minimum wage, uh, I suppose that is another fight that the Democrats will have to have at another time. But in the passage of this bill, it, it only passed with Democratic votes. Um, and even with Democratic votes, uh, they weren't exactly a united front. I believe there was one Democrat in the House of Representatives that joined the Republicans in voting against it. Uh, but every single Republican, including my representative, uh, voted against it. But that, of course, did not stop them from jumping onto Twitter and Facebook and, uh, you know, Fox News and all the rest and, and crowing about how this thing passed and their constituents are going to get so much help. A couple of things here. First of all, the discussion. The discussion that led uh, up to this point, the discussion that was coming out of the more conservative corners of the world, was we can't just give people money because then those people will become dependent on that money and they're going to expect more of it. When you give things to people, it's very hard to take those things away. Um, those things are true. But I have to ask, what's the problem? And they say, well, we can't just be taking care of everybody because then everybody's going to have a place to live and they're going to have food to eat. They're going to have clothes on their back. And can you imagine the anarchy that is going to play out when you start taking care of people? Once again, I have to ask, what's the problem? When the first stimulus bill passed, uh, it included $600 per week. For folks that were unemployed and considering the state of the world, people were incredibly elated to get that money. And yes, some of them said, no, we are not going to go back to work because we're making more by not going back to work. And then I heard it again out of the conservatives. Oh, my God, they're making so much money. They don't want to work. Actually, that was a very helpful thing. 
because it was not a good idea. I don't know if y'all remember. It was not a good idea to leave house during that time. Uh, cases were spiking. People were getting hospitalized. People were dying. And they go, well, Nabbit, we need these people to get to work. Why? Some of us continued working because we needed things to keep happening. Uh, there's logistics. We got, we've got things that we have to move around. Um, none of us grow food at home, so we really need that stuff driven around the country. Uh, medicine still needs to move around the country. If you work for the post office, you very likely kept working. But for everyone else, what we should have done is just paid everybody to stay home. But we said, no, we can't do that. And why can't we do that? Well, because people need to be out making money. People need to be out being productive. And this is the idea that gets pounded, pounded into our heads. That if we are not out doing stuff, if we are not out moving, if we are not out producing, then what we are in effect is losing. What we are doing in effect is we are adding no value to society by not working and making somebody else incredibly rich. I've been working for more than 20 years of my life now. Uh, ever since I turned adult at age 18, I have been working, sometimes several jobs. And let me tell you, kids, <laughs> I am not wealthy, but I've worked for some very wealthy people. So it seems that there's someone above me that's really making all the money. And it's not really about me working and, and, and producing and, and stacking them chips. It's about doing it for somebody else. And when you put that idea in somebody's head, then it can seem like you have to always be doing that, that you can't ever stop. You have to keep working. You have to keep producing. Otherwise, you no longer have value. And I believe that this has led to a lot of really hungry people. And I don't mean hungry for food. I mean hungry for anything that looks like success. But here's the thing. Life is terminal. This train is going to stop. It can't go on forever. And the more that you are on this, and I'm sticking with the rail analogy, the more that you are on this train, the closer you're coming to the end. And it's going to begin to slow down and it's going to stop and it's going to be it for you. And what are you going to do? Are you going to look back and, and wish that you had done more work? Wish that you had, you know, stacked more of them chips? What are you going to do? Are you doing things that give your life value? Are you doing things that make sure that you're remembered in a good way? Is your soul going to be happy as you transition into the light? I was reading an article in The Atlantic from a couple of years ago. I've started, I, during the pandemic, I pulled out all, all, my old, uh, uh, <laughs> all my old Atlantic magazines. I had a, a subscription to them for a little while. Uh, I, I, I definitely enjoy reading their writing, but when I um, began reading too many other things, I kind of fell behind on my subscription. But there's an article by Arthur C. Brooks, um, and it was written in June of 2019. And the title is, Your Professional Decline is Coming. And it's coming much sooner than you think. 
uh, quoting from the article here. These words came from an elderly woman sitting behind me on a late night flight from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. The plane was dark and quiet. A man that I assumed to be her husband murmured almost inaudibly in response, something to the effect of, I wish I was dead. Again, the woman said to him, stop saying that. I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but I I couldn't help it. I listened with morbid fascination, forming an image of the man in my head as they talked. I imagined someone who had worked hard all his life in relative obscurity, somebody with unfulfilled dreams, perhaps of the degree he never attained, the career he never pursued, the company he never started. At the end of the flight, as the lights switched on, I finally got to take a look at the desolate man, and I was shocked. I recognized him. He was, and still is, world famous. Then, in his mid-80s, he was beloved as a hero for his courage, patriotism, and accomplishment many decades ago. As he walked up the aisle of the plane behind me, other passengers greeted him with veneration. Standing at the door of the cockpit, the pilot stopped him and said, Sir, I have admired you since I was a little boy. The older man, apparently wishing for death just a few minutes earlier, beamed with pride at the recognition of his past glories. For selfish reasons, I couldn't get the cognitive dissonance of that scene out of my mind. It was the summer of 2015, shortly after my 51st birthday. I was not world famous like the man on the plane, but my professional life was going very well. I was the president of a flourishing Washington think tank, the American Enterprise Institute. I'd written some best-selling books. People came to my speeches. My columns were published in the New York Times, but I had started to wonder, can I really keep all of this going? I work like a maniac, but even if I stayed at it 12 hours a day, seven days a week, at some point in my career would slow and stop. And when it did, what then? Would I one day be looking back wistfully and wishing that I were dead? Was there anything I could do starting now to give myself a shot at avoiding misery and maybe even achieve happiness when the music inevitably stops? Though these questions were personal, I decided to approach them as the social scientist that I am, treating them as a research project. It felt unnatural, like a surgeon taking out his own appendix, but I plunged ahead. For the next number of years, I've been on a quest to figure out how to turn my eventual professional decline from a matter of dread into an opportunity for progress. The field of happiness studies has boomed over the past two decades, and a consensus has developed about well-being as we advance through life. In the happiness curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, Jonathan Roch, a Brookings Institute caller and Atlantic contributing editor, reviews the strong evidence suggesting that the happiness of most adults declines through their 30s and 40s but then bottoms out in their early 50s. Nothing about this pattern is set in stone, of course, but the data seem eerily consistent with my experience. My 40s and 50s were not an especially happy period of my life, notwithstanding my professional fortunes. So what can people expect after that based on the data? The news is mixed. Almost all the studies of happiness over the lifespan show that in wealthier countries, most people's contentment 
starts to decrease again in their 50s until about age 70 or so. That is where things become less predictable, however. After 70, some people stay steady in happiness. Uh, others get happier until death. Others, men in particular, see their happiness plummet indeed. Depression and suicide rates for men increase after the age of 75. So, America, uh, unquote, America is not unique in the way that we push people and that we tell people that they need to achieve and that they need to keep going and going. And, and the article goes on to describe Olympians who generally have to retire at much earlier ages than, say, you know, a, a welder or a, or a train conductor because you're in your peak physical shape in probably your late teens, maybe through your 20s. We don't all get to be Tom Brady and do this into our 40s. Um, a lot of athletes have to call it quits sometime in their 30s, especially if what they do is especially grueling on their bodies. Uh, but then what do you do after that? Because it's been put in your head from a young person that this is how you achieve happiness. Happiness comes through hard work. This, unfortunately, is written on a sign above the work camp in Germany over Auschwitz. You walk in and it's written in German. Uh, translated, hard work brings happiness. Now, this doesn't mean that we live, you know, in, in, a, in a third right type country or anything like that. But the same idea that we, that we fed to people um, that were eventually murdered... You know, the same idea that's been fed to us, that we just work and work and work until we drop dead, that has led to us accepting when politicians tell us the same thing, that we have to continue working to get happiness. And we have to keep working as much as we can, as fast as we can, and as hard as we can until the day that we die. And we only get to be here once. And when it is your time, when you do reach the end of your life, perhaps with a body broken in all kinds of ways and you're taking all kinds of maintenance medications, are you going to say, but, but, but yes, but look at what I achieved. Look at how much money I have, how much property I have. Look at all the likes I got on Facebook. That makes it all worth it. Actually, no one's going to remember that. And the, the projects, the, the things that I've done throughout my life when it came to uh, construction or, or doing deliveries, the work generally evaporated as soon as I was done with the task. Uh, nobody remembers it, up to and including myself. And for some, sometimes, for the money I did it for, I'm not even entirely sure that it was worth it. But it was put in my head, like it was put in so many others, that this is what we do. And this is what you have to do. Quoting again, if current accomplishment brings happiness, then shouldn't the memory of that accomplishment provide some happiness as well? Maybe not. Though the literature on this question is, is sparse, uh, giftedness and achievements early in life do not appear to provide an insurance policy against suffering later on. Unhappy is he who depends on success to be happy. Alex Diaz Ribeiro, a former Formula One race car driver, once wrote, For such a person, the end of a successful career is the end of the line. 
His destiny is to die of bitterness and to search for more success in other careers and to go on living from success to success until he falls dead. In this case, there will be, there will not be life after success. Quoting again, a few years ago, I saw a cartoon of a man on his deathbed saying, quote, I wish I had bought more crap, unquote. It has always amazed me that many wealthy people keep working to increase their wealth, amassing far more money than they could possibly spend or even usefully bequeath. One day I asked a wealthy friend why this is so. Many people who have gotten rich know how to measure their self-worth only in pecuniary terms. He explained, So they stay on the hamster wheel year after year. They believe that at some point they will accumulate enough to feel truly successful and happy and therefore be ready to die. This is a mistake and not a benign one. Most Eastern philosophy warns that focusing on acquisition leads to attachment and vanity, which derail the search for happiness by obscuring one's essential nature. As we grow older, we shouldn't acquire more, but rather strip things away to find our true true selves and thus peace. As we age, we should resist the conventional lures of success in order to focus on more transcendentally important things. Now, I don't want to scare you by saying you should think about death, but perhaps you should because death destroys a man, but the idea of death saves him. That's a quote. I don't know whose quote it is, but it's a good one. And it's not like, it's not saying you start thinking about dying, but what you should think about is what's going to be more important when we all inevitably reach that spot. Life is terminal. These lights will go out. And we're all going to have some sort of a uh, professional decline. And so whatever age you're at now, and you know if you're retired, sorry. <laughs> but uh, if you're not, if you're, say, closer to my age bracket, or maybe even in your 50s, start thinking about how to uh, view yourself in other ways where you don't see yourself as that hamster on the wheel, busting your ass for somebody else, trying to make them rich just so you can die with a little bit more or more than you need. I want to give you uh, one more, one more quote from, uh, from the article. Uh, There is a message in this for those of us suffering from what is known as the principle of psychoprofessional gravitation. Say you're a hard-charging type A lawyer executive, entrepreneur, or hypothetically, of course, president of a think tank. From early adulthood to middle age, your foot is on the gas professionally, living by your wits, by your fluid intelligence. You seek the material rewards of success, you attain a lot of them, and you are deeply attached to them. But the wisdom of Hindu philosophy and indeed the wisdom of many philosophical traditions should, should suggests that you should be prepared to walk away from these rewards before you feel ready. Even if you're at the height of your professional prestige, you probably need to scale back your career ambitions in order to scale up metaphysical ones. During the pandemic, we saw a lot of people lose their lose their lives and lose their livelihoods. You know, they lost money. They lost their 
place to live. They, you know, were short on food to eat. They got sick. Um, our, our medical system is run for profit. It was tough to get care even before the pandemic happened. Like we, we tend to do things for the wrong reasons and it has poisoned us. It has poisoned every single one of us. Um, but the idea was that we, we can't be going around with masks on and we can't be, you know, shutting down states just to save lives. Why? Because money's not going to be made by saving people's lives, by paying people to stay home so they don't get sick and die. Nobody is going to be getting richer. So we need to just be out there. 14 of the Southern states, if I'm not mistaken, have decided to just throw open their states right now. And they said to hell with it, 100% capacities and bars and gyms and restaurants, no more mask mandates. You know, this, this is America. <laughs> and they think that they are their own little countries. Uh, and they can be forgiven for thinking that. They, they've long thought of themselves that way. But someone pointed out to me that if you have the whole rest of the country doing the right thing with, with limited capacity and, and, and masks and you know, social distancing and, and, and vaccines, and then you have a place like Texas where they go, nope, we're not going to do that stuff anymore, even though like 6% of our population is vaccinated. Um, they don't exist alone. They're a part of the country. And so I heard somebody compare it to an excuse. I apologize ahead of time. This is, you know, this is going to be a little lowbrow. It's going to be a little gross, but it's like saying, well, you can pee in that corner of the pool. That's like, that's wherever you can pee in that corner and it's not going to affect the rest of the pool. Actually, it is. <laughs> it's going to go everywhere. It's going to be in that corner of the pool for a minute, but then eventually it's going to be everywhere. And of course, the more people that do it, the grosser it gets. I'm done with this analogy, but that's what we, that's what we have. And things are getting better. You know, and, and folks are getting their livelihoods back and they have gotten a ton of help from this stimulus bill. So another one of the things that the stimulus bill does is it expands Obamacare. So what does this mean? Well, this means at least in the short term, because remember, the uh, last administration sued to get rid of Obamacare and that decision will come down this summer. But this also expands Obamacare. It expands Medicare and Medicaid. And it also is going to cut your insurance premium rates. Uh, a lot of folks will see their insurance rates cut in half. Some people will even see their insurance premium rates go down to zero. So another one of those things that was in this bill that was not talked about, but is very important. Uh, the stimulus checks have gone out. Mine is already posted. Yours might have posted already, or it might post by the time this show comes out. Uh, there's, there's money for vaccines, and there's money for schools to reopen, and there's money for states to reopen. And they, they say we can't, the conservative movement says we can't do that. We can't do that because people are going to become dependent. Screw you. This is what we do. We should be helping one another. We should be taking care of one another. And it doesn't matter what it costs. Um, I want to get into modern monetary theory a little bit because it does tie in with this. Um, I, I'm, I'm short on time, but let me just give you my elevator speech on this. So because we, when we used to give money away to folks, you know, in the form of stimulus or another, what would have to happen at that time is money would have, physical money would have to actually be printed and it would have to be uh, delivered to people or, or delivered to banks. It was actual money that was printed. You know, that money moves around society 
Um, and the idea was that if you got too much of that out there, you would get inflation. And by the way, inflation is a real thing. Yes, it can happen. Yes, it has happened. But with modern monetary theory, think about this. When was the last time you went to your bank and took money out? When was the last time you even stepped foot in it? Just to look at, you know, what it looks like now. I mean, because it's been a while. You don't. For most of us, our bank accounts are numbers that are on a screen. Our checks are automatically deposited. Uh, we tend to move money around with credit cards. It's all numbers on a screen. It's not that physical money that's being moved around. So with that, it's almost like most money is digital anyway. So what do we need? Well, we need to get that money into regular working people's pockets. Why? Why? Because they spend all the money. The $2 trillion tax break bill that was passed uh, in the first year of the last administration, the only thing that did was gave uh, $2 trillion to, to people who were already rich and did not need it. And it had zero, listen to me, zero stimulative effect. They called it the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It had zero stimulative effect. So with modern monetary theory, you can put money out there. Yes, you can pay people more. Yes, you can give people stimulus. Yes, you can actually just cut checks to people. We've done this twice already during the pandemic and inflation has not gone anywhere. Why is that? Done right, modern monetary theory can and does work. There's a multiplier effect when you put money into the pockets of, say, me or some people that I know and everybody that, that I know is a working person. This stimulus for most people that I know, they're going to spend most, if not all of it. And that money has a multiplier effect. So for every dollar that is spent, it gets moved again and again and again. So for every dollar that's spent, depending on whose numbers you're looking at, it has a multiplier effect of either five or seven. So that $1 is now either $5 or $6 or $7 as it moves around society. You say, hey, if you put too much money out there and it's not backed up by anything, because remember, we're not on the gold standard anymore. We haven't been for nearly a hundred years now. You put too much money out there, it could lead to inflation or it will lead to inflation if you're listening to the folks who think that the world is coming to an end. And yes, that can happen. But what you do is you tax. And you take that money back out of society. Melvin, now you're talking about taxing working people. No, I am not. I'm talking about taxing the schmucks who got that $2 trillion five years ago who did not need that money. Excuse me, four years ago. Who didn't need that money and who just threw it on the pile. Jeff Bezos got that money. Yes, he threw it on the pile. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, the last president. They got that money and they just threw it on the pile and it had zero stimulative effect. And yes, the deficit does go up. When we do this stuff, we are effectively putting it on the national credit card. But because we control our own currency, we can do something like this. Now, obviously, the amount of money that you put out there cannot exceed the resources that you have in your country. What is that? Well, that's your human labor. Um, that's going to be your resources, of which we have a lot of in this country. It cannot ex ex exceed that which is out there. How do we know when it exceeds that which is out there? Well, that's why this type of thing has to be done uh, with a scalpel. It has to be very targeted. And I believe that what happened with the stimulus bill is targeted. You say, but Melvin, <laughs> 
We have to, we have to run the government like a household. This is the dumbest thing that I've heard come out of the mouth of anybody, not just economists, anybody. And if you have said though that phrase that we need to run the government like a household, just stop it. You can stop talking anytime, anywhere, ever again. Nobody should ever listen to you because you don't understand how these things work. A household and a government do not have the same objective. They're not trying to achieve the same thing. And the government is not necessarily dealing with an extremely tight money supply. So for all of the folks that say, we can't do this, right, and voted against the stimulus, they said, we can't do this because it's going to increase inflation and it's going to run up the deficit. Every single person that says that just voted against this bill, just voted against the stimulus bill, the money that you and I are getting. They voted against that, but they voted for the one, those same people voted for the bill, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which was just tax cuts for millionaires back in 2017. All those same people that are concerned about debts and deficits, they voted for that same bill back in 2017 that only went to rich people and had zero stimulative effect. I don't know how you get to be on both sides of the, of the fence with this issue, but you don't. It's not honest. Several Republican politicians who voted against the stimulus bill are already tweeting out or sending out fundraising letters to their constituents talking about, we got you this money. And why are they doing that? Well, because the money is in the COVID relief bill is incredibly popular. 75% of people as a whole, over 90% of Democrats and over 60% of Republicans say, yes, yes, they want this bill passed and they want this money out there. And I'm pretty sure that none of the folks that voted for either those conservative House or Senate members are going to be sending back their checks. COVID affected everybody. And I think that it was a test for every society in the world. Now, you can attribute that test to God or, you know, whatever you believe in. But I think it was a test of how we take care of one another. COVID also exposed a lot of the gaps that we have in our society. And I believe that those gaps will be addressed over the next number of years because we've learned so much from this time and we're not out of it and we're going to continue learning from this time. We need to stop telling people that the only value that they have is in producing. We need to stop putting them into the trap that once they are no longer working, then they don't have any worth to a society anymore. We need to stop telling people that the fact that they need to eat and have a place to live and have access to medicine makes them a burden and they better get out there and start plowing them fields. Otherwise, they're not going to get those things. When it comes to these issues, I'm always going to come down on the side of taking care of people. And I don't mean taking care of people who are progressive. I mean taking care of everybody and anybody, men, women, all the genders in between, <laughs> uh, conservative, progressive, you know, black, white. I don't care. Humans. I want to see human beings taken care of. Somebody, 
and possibly many somebodies loves you to at least one person in the world, you mean everything. And you are not the things that you produce. You are not the money that you make. You are not simply another cog or another hamster on the wheel. You have value. And the way that we run government at every level, the way that we talk to and about each other in society, it needs to start in that place rather than how much we can produce and how much more money that we can make. I've long watched these practices play out to my disappointment, but hopefully what we have learned from this time will change those things. Thank you for being here on the Fire You Camp It Out. Our official home is tfycpo.podbean.com. Questions, comments, hate mail, just a general statement or inquiry, you can email us at tfycpo at gmail.com. I apologize if I threw too much information at you today. It's like a machine gun. <laughs> I, I just, I just, I got him a feeling. What can I say? Uh, we work hard to not only inform and entertain, but also to keep an open dialogue with you, the listener. So feel free to reach out to us. And as always, thank you for listening. We are the fire you can't put out, and we will prevail, rejecting austerity in favor of prosperity. Special thanks to Kevin for producing, and thank you for listening. This is Melvin, signing off. And now that I've woke you up, good morning.